SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators, and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm here with Guy Christopher Adami. If you guys were wondering what the C was, uh, it's Christopher. Uh, And of course, Liz Young. That would be EY from SoFi. Guy, welcome back, buddy. It is a joy to be back. A lot of people think the C stands for cool cat, but no, they'd be incorrect. It is, in fact, Christopher, guy, Christopher Adami, GCA. Have, have we delved into what EY's middle name is? Is that something? Has that been a topic yes, of conversation? Have, but maybe she will enlighten us. My middle name is Francis, Elizabeth Whoa. Francis. It's a tough handle, yeah, guy. Sounds Catholic, but actually was not <laughs> named after anything Catholic. Uh, and Francis, for a female, ends C-E-S, don't make that mistake of spelling mm-hmm. it C-I-S. Take it easy, Francis. Yeah. There's a great place in Lower Manhattan, I think, for some of you denizens of Wall Street, you will recall, of course, Francis Tavern, the oh, yeah. oldest establishment in uh, New York City. George Washington feasted there back in the day. Back to you. Well, Guy, when you started trading below the Buttonwood tree, wasn't that where, <laughs> isn't that where you used to go and, 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 and get a, a frosty beverage after a full day of tape trading? And literally yeah, it was tape side, We called them ciders then, but yes, yeah. you are correct. All right, let, let, let's get into it. Listen, we're, we're going to have our fun conversation. We're going to set you all up for the week ahead. And it is a big week here, guys. we got like major, major earnings coming. Uh, Microsoft, Google tomorrow night. We have Meta. Um, and then we also have Amazon later in the week. This week, it's kind of interesting. Apple is a week later than normal. Usually it's clustered um, with all of those. So we're going to get a big tech readings. Um, we're going to hit on a couple things here. There was some calls for a lower dollar. Um, what kind of bank earnings mean for um, the potential for a looming credit crunch and, and who is going to be affected first. So let's talk all about all that. And obviously sentiment in the market guy, you just mentioned something I thought was interesting. You've been gone for a week and you said the market's basically the same exact spot. Um, it was when you left. So let's let's hit all that. Also, after this conversation, we have Alfonso Pecatiello. He is the author of the Macro Compass. He is on Twitter at Macro Alf. He is a great follow, great read, and we had a great conversation about what he is expecting for U.S. economy, global economy, and what he thinks um, different risk markets are pricing for that. All right, guy, hit us on that 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 reflection here because I'm sure you were checking in on the market over the course of the last week. But it's sometimes it's really interesting to be away from your fact set machine, um, not staring at every tick of the things that you're looking at, not following every headline, not speaking about it all day as you do on Market Call and on, on, the, on the tape and on Fast Money. What's your reflection here as we're getting in the meat of our S&P earnings for Q1? Yeah, well, look, I think Friday the 14th is when I left, and I think the S&P closed around 41.37. And as I'm sitting here staring at my fact set machine, the S&P is – Wait for it, 4137. <laughs> so that would imply uh, not a lot of movement. Now, I'm sure we saw some ups and downs along the way, but each time that I sort of checked in, 
there didn't seem to be a whole hell of a lot going on. You had some moving bond yields. I guess gold gave a little bit back. Uh, the VIX has been trading either side of sort of between 16 and a half and 18 or so. But as I'm sitting here, it doesn't look like all that much transpired during the week. With that said, I'm sure there were some interesting headlines that you all spoke about last week without question. And I'm sure there were some individual stock moves, too. Uh, I think there was an NVIDIA upgrade while I was gone. But, you know, in terms of the broader market, it doesn't seem like all that much has happened. Uh, And maybe it's just just waiting for some of the data we have this week and some of those very uh, high level earnings that you mentioned. But clearly, in terms of the broader market, a bit of a snooze fest last week. Yeah, you know, Liz did some heavy lifting for you, Guy, um, while you were gone. Uh, we did sure did a couple market calls, a couple on the tapes here. Um, Liz, thoughts here because it seems like we digested those bank earnings. Um, they weren't as bad as expected. We spent a lot of time on Butters data talking about how estimates have come down for S&P earnings over the course of Q1. And this has been a trend that we've seen a lot you know, throughout 2022, when the, when the market was clearly in a bear market where estimates would come down, companies would beat, strategists were, I guess, a little bit more hopeful, right? Because there were no, the bottom wasn't falling out here. Thoughts on what you've seen so far and what you expect just from a sentiment standpoint as we get into the meat of some of the biggest companies in the S&P 500? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge, huge week for earnings, also a huge re- week on the macro front. We've got GDP, PCE, both sentiment readings, home prices, it's just a complete influx of data. And I think the market's going to have a lot to look at and think about. But to your point, bank earnings did get digested pretty well. The big banks, though, came in reasonably positively, right? And I think I've said this before, the regional bank's loss was the big bank's gain. That being said, banks have been hit pretty hard. The sector as a whole, the industry group as a whole, trading below book value. And historically, where things are trading on a price-to-book basis has been a pretty good predictor of the next two years of returns. Now, I'm not saying that we should plow all our money into banks right now, because I still think that there's some uh, uncertainty and some risk out there. But where they're trading is certainly more attractive than where it would have been had we not sort of digested all of the risks that are still out there. Some of the stuff that I still think is coming that not will will not only affect banks but affect the rest of the market is still this credit idea and this pullback in lending, this pullback in availability, not just for big companies but small companies. And I think we underestimate how much small businesses really have an influence on the entire economy, not just on an employment level. They employ something like 80% of all of our workers, but also just it's the American way. You start as a small business, you grow into a mid-sized business, and then into a large cap business. So if small businesses are unable to get some of that financing because bigger banks are pulling back and credit standards have tightened, that's sort of uh, the canary in the coal mine that could come up later. Yeah, so Peter Bookvar, our friend over there at Bleakley Advisors who writes The Book Report, check it out. It's one of my first reads every morning. He was highlighting this. It was a Wall Street er, uh, Journal article over the weekend, Why the Banking uh, Mess is Not Over. And he, they were quoting um, economists at Goldman, uh, estimate every 10% decline in bank profitability reduces lending by 2%. And I thought that was really interesting. And then he goes on to hit exactly what you're talking about, Liz. What is the impact on small businesses Guy, businesses with fewer than 100 employees receive nearly 70% of their commercial and industrial loans from banks with less than $250 billion in assets and 30% of such lending from banks with less than $10 billion. Uh, that is according to Goldman. And so when you think about that, right, and you think about this looming sort of credit crunch, if there is this decline in earnings from banks, um, that is something that you really want to track pretty closely because if credit seizes up for the lifeblood of the American economy, we are going to have have less employment, we're going to have less capex investment, all the all the like here. Seems like an inevitability to me. If you just start, if you connect the dots and see what's going on on the field of play, it would suggest that that's exactly what's going to take place, and and it makes sense. And I don't think, and we've talked about this. It's no longer about where interest rates go. I mean, I think that will move the broader market here and there, but in terms of bank lending, it comes down to more strident credit requirements and stricter credit uh, res- credit reserves and credit levels in terms of lending. They're just not going to be as apt at lending as they were in, in maybe environments six or so weeks ago prior to Silicon Valley. It's probably longer than that now. So with that said, it's just going to be a tighter credit period. I think people that had access to credit will no longer have it. And if they do, it's going to be at much higher rates. I think that's going to be problematic. On top of that, 
you're going to start seeing more and more layoffs, I think. So it's this whole pastiche that you have to talk about. And what does that mean to the broader economy when 75% of the U.S. economy is driven by people buying stuff? So I don't know how you unravel that and, and come out to some sort of bullish narrative. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, and I guess if you're thinking about it through the lens of the public markets, keep an eye on the Russell 2000 small caps. And we've we've noted the underperformance year to date. It's up a little less than 2% versus a NASDAQ that's up you know, 16% and S&P that's up nearly 8% um, on the year. Liz, I want to hit this, and, and I think our listeners know um, very well that you are not the sort of strategist that puts out um, price targets for, for the major indices. You don't have... Um, estimates for um, earnings for, let's say, the S&P 500. And, you know, we've noted this a lot over the last, I, I would say, couple months. It's really hard to find a bullish strategist at um, a large investment institution. There are not many of them out there. And sometimes it's easy to get caught up in what your clients are saying and what your, you know, kind of what the, the headlines are, what the narratives. And I thought this is interesting. This is Savita Subramanian. Uh, from Bank America. She's somebody who comes on CNBC a whole heck of a lot. I think she was one of the first strategists in early 2022 to really kind of turn negative and, and call for this earnings recession and then become a bit more negative on the economy. And this was a quote, I think, in her note um, from this morning. Um, she is pondering whether the 2023 EPS target of $200 for S&P 500 uh, earnings was too grim, according to a note to clients this week. Consensus earnings for the S&P um, over the next 12 months are $219. We've seen some strategists who say worst case scenarios, they could see $180. So what does it mean four months in that you know she had been um, negative and right for the better part of 2022? She was doubling down into 2023, but now four months in where you know, we went from hard landing, soft landing, no landing back to soft landing after the banking sort of thing. If you're trying to kind of second guess or rethink your worst case scenario, um, what, what does that mean to you when you start seeing th those sorts of moves by strategists? This is your peer group. Yeah. Well, first of all, as a strategist, number one, most of us, if not all of us, have to do writing from now and again, and pretty often. And here's the difficult part. This is why you don't find a lot of bullish strategists at this particular moment, because when you sit down and really put your fingertips on a keyboard and try to break down what are the reasons why I can be constructive, you run out of reasons very, very quickly. And writing is a task that really puts a a huge spotlight on that, right? You can sort of talk your way around things, but you can't necessarily write your way around things. So you're not going to find a ton of bullish strategists because there isn't a ton of data to support it. What I would say about Savita's comment, it sounds like maybe she's being a little more constructive on earnings, but not necessarily on the environment itself. It didn't sound like she extrapolated that out into the broader economy or into the where the market was going to be headed. The way that she could be right in the sense of maybe estimates are too low, although let's keep in mind that estimates being at this level is still flat year over year compared to 2022, which I still find difficult to imagine given the environment. However, where she could be right is that tech makes up such a big part of the index. If they cut enough costs, and I've said this quite a few times, if they cut enough costs, they cut enough heads, they cut enough of the fat to maintain their margins better than what maybe we were expecting, that might be the case. If tech comes in and surprises us, which we're going to start finding out this week, but I think second quarter earnings are probably the bigger one. If tech comes out and surprises us with wider margins than we thought they would have, then yeah, earnings might be better than we expected. I will say this. I made a bet with somebody that earnings would be negative year over year. And this person thinks that earnings are going to be positive more than 5% year over year. I won't I won't call out who that is, but either way, somebody owes somebody a pizza if that's the case. And I do still think they'll be negative. It might just be negative 1%, but again, I can't imagine a scenario where earnings are flat year over year. Get that a sausage pizza with, with red onions, by the way, pepperoni. when you do emerge victorious, which you will. No, you can't do it. Wait, no, hold on, guy. Hold on. Saying. You cannot do red onions, and I'll tell you why. If those, <laughs> those red onions... All of the, the moisture will come out on that pie, and it just leaks, and it makes what, what should be a nice, firm crust really soggy there. And if you try to pick that piece up off of the pie with all those red onions on there, it's a total disaster. It's going to turn into soup in the middle. So um, as someone who's half Italian, half Sicilian guy, I thought you would have known better than that. Yeah, no, listen, I love a red onion. I mean, or you could do what ex-Mayor de Blasio would do, and he would eat his pizza with a knife and fork, which is— Deeply troubling. Very Midwestern, by the way. <laughs> I was Hopefully, say, I'm I've done that before. Half the country. <laughs> yeah, because that's why. I don't fold exactly. my pizza. I, that's a sandwich. Right. 
No, it's, it's a, a calzone. No, it's no. folding your pizza I, I don't, is the I don't, acceptable. No, there's no folding. Anyway, I was what I was going to say. Uh, first of all, yes, I do think you will emerge victorious. Second, you know, you can't cost your way to profitability. Yeah, it might work for a quarter or two. And I think we saw that. If you want proof positive, go back a couple quarters ago and look at the Disney report where the stock, I think that day closed around 102, reported earnings. I think the stock was north of 121 in the aftermarket on this cost-cutting initiative. We talked about it on Fast Money that night and then subsequently on Market Call and on the tape. Said, look, that's great. But how sustainable is that? I mean, that's not a uh, long-term business thesis that you can cut, 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 cut your way to greater margins and greater profitability. So yes, maybe for a quarter, you'll see it. But you know, I've, I've read over the weekend, You know, a lot of people still think the lag effect from a Fed over the last nine months still has not been felt. And I would agree with that. So Guy, let's talk about this NASDAQ 100. Okay. So the ETF that tracks it is the QQQ here. And when you look at um, what is expected between now and Friday's close, the at the money straddle in the QQQ is about a little less than 2%. And if you look at the NASDAQ, the NDX chart, and you look since the start of this month, how tight of a range that is trading right now, the NASDAQ is trading at 13,000. It's traded as high as 13,200. Okay. And as low as about 13,000. Uh, excuse me, 12,800, 12, okay? So it's traded in a 400-point range. We are at the dead midpoint about it. The implied move between now and the end of the week, and we're going to have Microsoft and Alphabet tomorrow after the close. We're going to have Meta, and we're going to have Amazon. And I think that's probably at least, I don't know, 20 to 25% of the NASDAQ 100, and then Apple next week. And you say to yourself, Something's got to give here because the flatlining of an index like this, which really so many people, I think Liz just said it, and so many people that we know who maybe don't even drill down so much on the on the fundamentals of these companies, but they're really focused on the, um, I guess, how much of a weight they are of the major indices. Something's going to give, and it's going to give fairly soon. So, guy, just curious when you see that sort of sideways price action on something that has generally been pretty volatile over the last, call it 12 to 16 months. I looked at the S&P, as I said, there was, a, I think there might have been one or two days last week where the S&P closed within a handle or two of being unchanged, which is interesting. And you brought up the, the QQQ, rightly so. It, may, it You know, a lot of people would say, okay, we've leveled off. We're building a base. The next leg is going to be higher. I would understand that. I mean, that's been the trajectory. A lot of other people would say this is a classic topping out formation. Then you have to ask yourself, I mean, under what set of circumstances does this index justify being here? And out of all the names you mentioned, for some reason, I keep coming back to Microsoft because I do think that's a really interesting tell on not only the environment, but the market sentiment as well. The last quarter, if you recall, and I know you do, that stock traded as low as 222 off what was, by Microsoft standards, not a particularly robust quarter. And it got its second wind on the back of this whole AI thing that seemingly cropped out of nowhere with names like NVIDIA going ballistic. And I think Microsoft sort of uh, got caught up in that wave to the upside. But the entire move higher from that 220 level, I think up around 290 or so, was really just on the back of uh, multiple expansion. How sustainable is that? Because I will tell you, things on the ground didn't get much better. So to answer your question, what it tells me is, in my opinion, we're at this topping formation where people are not going to be as apt or prone or their want's not going to be to pay what I believe are pretty excessive multiples in an environment where they actually be, should be looking at much lower multiples. And, you know, quickly back to Savita talking about 200, 220, 222, whatever it takes for you, Michael Keaton fans. It's still what multiple do you want to put on that in this environment? You know, an 18 multiple does not make a lot of sense to me. You know, we have traded as low as an 11, I think, right around the great financial crisis and in the months after. And I'm not suggesting we go there, but to think we can't go to mid-teens, I think it's just foolish. All right, just so you know, it's 220, 221, whatever it takes. That's for all you Mr. Mom fans. Um, Guy, you know that Michael Keaton is coming back as the Batman. He was the first Batman. And yes, he is. And he's going to be in like the latest uh, kind of version, which is pretty pretty dope for him. Um, Liz, on the flip side of that, so Guy just talked about how Microsoft has seen this multiple expansion. And for a whole host of reasons, okay, you've seen this flight to sort of quality, and you know, definitely during the, the month of March 
March when we had this banking turmoil. Um, we've also seen a lot of excitement about their partnership with OpenAI and, and, and what that could mean for them if they were to uh, gain some share in search with Bing, but also as they integrate it into their productivity tools. The other thing I think is really interesting, and let's go back to Friday. Procter & Gamble reported, okay? So here's a stock that trades 27 times earnings, Guy, when we're talking about multiples. And you brought this up with Pepsi last quarter, okay? What percentage of their kind of um, gains were coming from pricing pressure versus organic growth. And that was something that was very evident in Procter. I think they had 7% pricing growth versus 3% product growth. Okay. So they still have this ability to kind of raise prices here. So my question at 27 times for Procter trading very near um, a 52 week high, what does that mean to you when you think about, so we're seeing some stuff on, you know, that some people will say that some of these major mega cap names because of their moats, because of their balance sheets, because of their managements, their monopoly are basically like consumer staples. Um, are we going to see maybe a reset of these multiples for some of these big cap tech names near, you know, staples, consumer staple um, multiples? Because for no, some reason, we've never really questioned why those names like Procter and Coke are able to kind of maintain those well above market multiples. Okay. First of all, when you if you bought something like Procter & Gamble, Imagine what you bought it for. Did you buy it because you expected them to somehow generate organic growth and be this new big player and take over something or, you know, find a bunch of new customers? I'm guessing the answer is no. I'm guessing that it's just we expected it to be a steady eddy. It's got decent fundamentals. We keep it in the portfolio to be smooth, right? If you're buying mega cap tech names, I'm willing to bet that your expectation is that they are going to grow quite a bit more than something like a P&G or like some consumer staples, in which case maybe you're willing to pay a little bit more for that growth opportunity. But that also tells me that the multiple that they're sitting at, and if it goes even higher, is probably fragile if that growth does not come to fruition and or if rates stay high or go even higher, which they've been grinding higher a bit in the last couple of weeks. So I think that the multiples on big tech are probably a little bit more at risk than what you're looking at in the staples arena. However, if you just think about as a customer, right, as a consumer, which Guy mentioned is such a huge part of the economy, if we have a downturn, everything's going to go down for a little while. That's just how this works, right? That the multiples are going to come down. The expansion that we've seen in multiples probably is not durable through a big downturn, especially if earnings come down even further, which would suggest that multiples should be even lower. The last thing I want to say about multiples, and I'll have to double check the data on this, but I'll, I'll say it just kind of roughly, because of the way the index has changed, because of how much of a weight tech is versus what it was, let's say, 15 or 20 years ago, and this actually is a little bit of a positive spin if, if I'm able to make one, the multiple that we see today, if you would have kept the weightings, the sector weightings uh, the same and rolled back, let's say, 15 or 20 years, the multiple would have been at least one times higher. Vice versa, if you kept the weightings from 15 or 20 years ago consistent to today, the multiple would be about one time lower. So it's probably going to stay higher, even in a downturn, than what we've seen in the past, which is why I don't think that we get back down to 11 times. I think that if we do have a pullback, it's going to be something more like 15-ish, something like that, which is where we got to in October. But 18.2 is too high. Part of the bullish thesis, by the way, that I've heard, people saying that in an environment globally that we're witnessing, people want the stability, and I'm using air quotes now because you can't see me, of the U.S. equity market, which is why they'd be willing to pay up in terms of multiple and in terms of valuation. And I can understand that to a point. And quickly, you know, I don't drink the Coca-Cola that often. I actually drink it when I'm on an airplane for some reason. It tastes better because they give you the entire can. By the way, that's a great line, of course, from a movie, uh, if you recall. Would you like that in the can? No, I'll take it right here for you folks again <laughs> playing our home game. But I had a Coca-Cola on the way back yesterday, and I knew they were going to report today. And organic growth is code word for we're basically um, screwing our customers. That is what inflation is. And I think the organic growth today for Coca-Cola was about 11% off, I think, a 3% or so sales growth. So that to me is if you run and look under the hood where inflation really is, look at some of the, again, quote unquote, organic growth numbers out of Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And quickly, Dan, uh, if you want to go to your fact set charting machines, Coca-Cola made an all time high, I think, around this time last year, early May or so of last year, 67 and change. 
had a leg lower. Now here we are again around 65. I mean, for you armchair technicians out there, we might be able, we might be putting in a bit of a double top here in the company that comes out KO. KO. Um, you know, it's interesting. There was an article in Bloomberg um, over the weekend, and it was talking about um, hedge funds plays biggest ever short on benchmark treasuries. And so they're obviously, uh, just some of the quotes here, they're just eyeing, uh, eyeing stickier inflation. I mean, to your, to, to, and Peter was talking about this also in his note this morning, is that even though, the you know, kind of we've seen a massive um, decline in inflation from year ago readings or from like, summer of, of 2022, you know, it, it really now is going to be focused on the rate of change, right? And how much it's kind of above, you know, what, what the Fed really would like it to be. And so that's going to be the reason why we're likely to see higher for longer. And that was a theme, I think, you know, when the markets were at their lows in October, a lot of people were focused on that notion of higher for longer, which gets us to, you know, the ten-year has come down, I, and we could all agree that's probably more reflective of growth. The two-year is still, well, you know, above two percent. Fed funds is about to be above five percent here. And even if the Fed says at their May third meeting they're done raising, if they were to go and say that, okay, the knee-jerk might be to buy stocks. But if you were kind of going by the playbook of the pre-pandemic levels, um, you know, of just kind of low rates, and the Fed's got your back, Fed put that sort of thing, and then that was obviously confirmed during the pandemic in. 2020, and then obviously throughout 2021 with quantitative easing, I mean, the thing that you might get wrong about it this time is that if the Fed were to materially lower rates from that 5% Fed funds rate, right, to somewhere where you think it's going to be more constructive for equity valuations, the reasons, and Guy, you've said this again and again, the reasons why that happened are not going to be really probably that beneficial to stocks, right, in general. So um, again, and you know, Alf, hits this in our next uh, part of this conversation here is like what breaks next and what breaks next might not be something that is culminated with just a 25% peak to drop decline um, in the S&P 500 thoughts on that Liz. Yeah. I mean, I've said this, I feel like ad nauseum last year, the 25% decline that we saw was based on the belief that we would have a slowdown in growth, but there was no guarantee and there wasn't a widely held belief that we would have a recession. Since then, I think many more people have jumped on the recession bandwagon and said, you know what, it's probably more likely than not. And even things like if you look at the near-term forward spread, which is the three-month yield today versus the three-month yield 18 months from now, which is the Fed's preferred measure of recession timing, it's showing more than an 80% chance of a recession in the next 12 months. So there have been more and more people that have said, you know what, it's going to be really hard to avoid one. So a 25% decline is, yes, absolutely characterized as a bear market, but it is not absolutely characterized as a recessionary bear market. A recessionary bear market is usually beyond 30%. I believe the average is actually 44%. So if we do confirm a recession and a classic recession, not the fake one that we had in the beginning of last year, but a classic recession where cyclicals get hit, growth slows down, it resets the business cycle, inflation is taken care of, we probably do need to see a little bit further drawdown in stocks. I'm not going to call a bottom. I'm not going to say anything like we haven't seen it yet, whatever. But if you look back at history, and I know history rhymes, it doesn't repeat, that bottom usually happens after the Fed starts cutting. Right. And this time, if they start cutting, it's not going to be for the best reason. So we have to pay attention to that. The market still has one cut priced in for sure by the end of the year. I actually agree with that. History rhymes with mystery, Dan, for you Sarah McLaughlin <laughs> fans out there. Building want a mystery? To build a mystery. Yes, very well done by you. And it is a bit of a mystery to me is why people would think there's going to be magically the Fed cutting rates in the back half of this year, which, by the way, is fast approaching with an unemployment rate of about three and a half percent. It just does not make a lot of sense to me. What would be the reasons to cut rates in the back half of this year unless, to your point, Dan, something really bad happened? Yeah. And just to kind of bookend this whole conversation, I'll just say this is that, you know, um, the, the Savita thing is interesting and, and everybody, you know, reserves their, their, the right to change their mind, right. And to kind of tweak, um, their outlooks, especially when you're doing the sort of work that she's doing on a macro level with a whole host of, of different inputs. Right. And so when we're starting to get the micro data, which is earnings right now, those are the sorts of things, the further you get through throughout the year, those are the sorts of things that cause you to kind of rejigger a little bit. Some of your outlooks, I'll just say this though, if I'm looking at the S and P 500 chart, I'm looking at it to guys point at 41. 
138, exactly where it was when he left a week or so. It's up about 9% from its March lows when things felt pretty bad in, 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 the, in the midst of that kind of banking crisis. And remember, the, the Fed, uh, the Treasury, the FDIC, they all took extraordinary measures, right, to kind of stopgap that little situation here. And I'll point people to the article that we just mentioned from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. There's a lot of um, very prominent market thinkers quoted in there, says we're not likely done. I guess as I think about earnings season right here, um, a little fear in the market, a VIX around 20, an S&P that's come in 4 or 5%, an NASDAQ that's come in maybe 6 or 7% over the next few weeks, that might be the sort of thing that actually sets the stage for better entry points if you're looking to be constructive on different parts of the market. And so to me, when I look at the level of complacency we're seeing, I look at the technicals here, I look at the valuations where they are, I look at the fact that the things that were causing a lot of fear about a month or six weeks ago are causing no fear right now, I see Say that's not the sort of situation that I think is like I would I don't want to buy that for a breakout right here if that makes some sense to you guys. So Liz, last word here um, as we go into like you called it a very important week for the markets. Look, the other thing, just to follow up on your statement, it doesn't have to happen in a huge fashion. There doesn't have to be like a one week drawdown and we just take care of it. It could be a situation where it grinds lower for a while and that's going to feel like a really excruciatingly long time. But it doesn't have to happen in one way or another. This is, and I know we say this every week, and my analyst always makes fun of me when I say this is going to be a really interesting week. He's like, you say that every Monday. Yes, I do. But this one is a really big one. We've got a ton of economic data coming. We've got a ton of earnings coming, the beginning basically of tech earnings, so we can see if they've done enough so far. And the economic data I don't think is going to be necessarily something that surprises us yet, because I still think a decent amount of it is going to come in uh, pretty strong. But you've got something like durable goods coming out, which usually kind of flies under the radar. Sometimes the market reacts to it if it surprises big. Durable goods is a good indicator of how things are looking for the next month or so. So watch that number. That's something that consumers change their behavior on pretty quickly. And the other thing I would say is we could end up staying in this range until and unless we have a catalyst to do otherwise. And that catalyst could be something that sends us to the upside. But I think we're stuck here, to Guy's point earlier, the entire last week where things seemed like they didn't really change. We're stuck here because nothing has really happened yet that has sent the market or surprised the market in either direction. Excruciatingly long, by the way, are words to describe uh, people's conversations with me from time to time. I'm sure most people feel that way, number one. Number two, what we didn't talk about, but apparently has been transpiring, uh, the Speaker of the House has promised to get this debt limit thing done, although it's I'm hard-pressed to believe that he has the votes to do such in Congress, we will find out. But I think the market's sort of taking its cues from some of his words in terms of some of the stability. But number three, Dan, you and I have gotten to know EY from SoFi rather well over the last few years, and it's been extraordinarily rewarding, I think, for both of us. But I find her to be somebody that keeps her promises. And I know she made a promise, I believe, to one of our Twitter viewers, listeners, whatever that term would be, uh, to address something. So perhaps EY from SoFi, we can get into these ODTE, which I believe stands for zero days till expiry options. Yes, I did promise somebody. I got a question on Twitter about this new index that is starting today. The CBOE released a one day volatility index because they were trying to find something that could track the fact that zero days to expiration options have become such a popular thing. The regular VIX is a 30-day index, so it wasn't catching all of that activity. And as we know, the zero days to expiration options have been uh, quite active every single day, and it felt like the regular VIX was not catching the real volatility that was happening in the market. I don't know yet if it's going to work. I don't know what it looks like at this point, but it started. It's out there. It's live. It's down for the day <laughs> so far, but we'll see how the rest of it goes, and we can cover it as it comes in. But I think it's, so far, I think it's a good thing. I think it's good to have more measures of this on a daily basis. Maybe it'll expose some stuff that's actually going on under the surface of the market.
All right. Well, thanks for that, Liz Young, EY from SoFi, for joining us on the Monday edition of On the Tape. Guy, it's great to have you back. Everyone, uh, we appreciate you listening. Um, we have a special drop of a OK Computer. It will also be in this feed. Check it out tomorrow. I have Gene Munster of Deep Water Asset Management. We are going to take a look at all the major tech earnings. We're going to get his rundown as a bit of a preview into that. So that will drop in the feed tomorrow uh, morning. Stick around right now. Alfonso Pecatiello of the Macro Compass joins me for a very excellent conversation on his outlook for the economy, for the markets, and what he's most focused on to kind of get his read on both. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to On The Tape. I have a very special guest, somebody who's returning to the pod. That would be Alfonso Pecatiello. He is the author of The Macro Compass. He is a great follow on Twitter. He is at MacroAlf. Alf, welcome back, bud. Uh, It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for having me back. All right. Before we get into some of the work, and and, and again, um, you know, I, I've I've followed you. I first found you on Twitter, like I think a lot of us did, um, maybe about a year ago. I think you started kind of blogging just a little bit. Um, I think you were doing it under the Macro Compass moniker, but you've really taken off. I, I want to say in the last six to nine months, your following has become huge, both on social um, and by what I can tell as far as um, subscriptions to the Macro Compass. Um, it's one of my first reads when it comes out each day. I've been a subscriber um, for a while. Talk to us a little bit before we're, we're going we're gonna to get into some of the recent um, comments, some of the recent posts, some of your outlook for how to invest in Q2, how you're thinking about the yield curve, um, the Fed's credibility at this point, what they're likely to do and what the market is likely to to perceive um, their course of action after their May 3rd meeting. But talk to us a little bit about your journey. I think a lot of our listeners probably heard about you, saw you last year, and you're building a pretty um, large community right now. And you can see that by your engagement on social. But talk to us a little bit about the macro alpha and what you've been able to build in the last year or so. So I, uh, before turning into... uh you know, a social influence or whatever it's called these days. I used to run a uh, $20 billion fund for ING, which is a uh, European bank, actually a global bank. And I did that for eight years. So I was in Wall Street, basically, uh, running money. And at some point, I decided I actually wanted to do something by myself, you know, set up shop and try to see if I can freely speak out my mind to the broader world which is what I did through the macro compass first through social media but then I realized you know I did a broader platform that allowed me allowed me to elaborate more build models share portfolios with my clients etc which has been done on the macro compass which today serves I think uh, quite a thousands of uh, macro investors around the world being sophisticated retail people hedge funds institutional investors all over the place what I tend to do at the end is just to decompose what's going on in macro, thanks to my expertise, especially in bond markets, and make it actionable for people and in plain English. And it seems the there is quite an appetite for that out there, which makes me very, very happy. 
Yeah, well, listen, you know, this is your third time back uh, on our programs, and we often quote your work, whether it's your tweets or, or whether it's your posts there. So we really appreciate it. And I'll just say this, you know, um, if you're listening to this right now, I, I am not trained the way Alf is trained. Guy um, is not. Danny um, definitely has some macro chops. But to me, to kind of have some sort of understanding of the macro, um, it's really important for my broader thesis, right? I like to think, you know, top down and then work on individual names or sectors, bottoms up and kind of meet in the middle a bit. So um, that's why, you know, people like this are very important to me. And that's why we spend a lot of time on the macro, but usually with smarter people than us. Um, all right, let's, let's talk about this. You were last on December 2nd with Guy um, and Danny, and you spent a bit of time talking about that interplay, like you said, with the, um, the the interest rate volatility and what it likely meant to you about other risk assets, which had been less volatile. You know, last year in the stock market here, you know, it was upper left to the bottom right, but it was very orderly, right, in, in, in many ways. And we, you know, yeah, we had um, spikes in the VIX, you know, to the mid-20s. Maybe it got, you know, o- over 30, that sort of thing. But it was very brief. But it was really that, that, that bond market volatility. And, you know, you kind of suggested that something was likely to break. And we did have some things break early this year. Talk to us a little bit about how your outlook at the end of 22 has played out into 2023. And now how are you thinking about, you know, the bond market volatility has definitely calmed a bit here, but we also have readings of the equity market volatility at levels that we haven't seen since the S&P was at all-time highs in the first week of January of 2022 when it was trading at 4,800. Of course, excellent intro from your end. Look, the main thesis back then was that this higher for longer mantra would only be in reality higher until something breaks. It has always been the case, and this time it ended up being a liquidity stress in the banking sector. Funnily enough, because it was not a credit stress, but a liquidity stress, it ended up boosting the market higher through Fed intervention which calmed markets, injected bank reserves and liquidity into the system. And we ended up, through the Fed tools, calming down this very idiosyncratic liquidity stress. It wasn't a systemic stress at all, but it ended up stimulating the Federal Reserve to intervene again. And markets are just so used to buy the dip and rally and kill volatility whenever they smell the Federal Reserve is pivoting, right? The market has been trained for 10 years to do exactly that. Front load Fed pivots, buy the dip, whenever you smell the Fed is doing something accommodative. It has always worked. And so we are seeing muscle memory at work here, if you ask me. We are seeing this banking mayhem hysteria, which was out there in March. Luckily, on the macro compass, I could guide people through what was happening. It was an idiosyncratic liquidity stress that the Fed could backstop. They did, I think, very promptly so. And this has ended up calming markets down to the point where because realized volatility is so low, because the S&P doesn't go anywhere, because we don't have drawdowns, because the bond market is now trending in a range, all this leveraged community, all these hedge funds, volatility targeting funds, CTAs, momentum traders, they have now the risk budget to jump back in because the market isn't that volatile anymore. And when that input becomes, hey, look, the market isn't jumping left, right, and center. Volatility is calming down. You actually get risk budget to get back into the market, and you see this low grind up that we see. Every time we hear that this is a new bull market, we have heard this in July last year. We have heard it as well in November last year. We keep hearing it at every iteration. It is a mechanical, flow-driven, volatility compression-driven bear market rally. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So to, let's just look at the S&P, for instance, from that October low, we're up nearly 20%. And, and again, so we've seen plenty, plenty of proclamations about a new uh, bull market that's in place. We're up about 9% from those kind of mid-March lows in the height of the fears of that little banking crisis. But the market seems stuck. And I guess to your point about the muscle memory of any time the Fed um, you know, appears to intervene or might pivot, right? I mean, that's been the playbook really since, you know, 2010 or so, you know, and I've mentioned this in, in you know, a, a couple pods over the last few weeks. I mean, if you were fully invested and, and that is your kind of 
a playbook there. You know, if you want to be tactical and hedge, and this is what a lot of the people I think that you speak to and that I speak to on the institutional front, you could look, let's just say you wanted to look out to May 5th. And let's say that week, we know that on that Friday, May 5th expiration, we have the April jobs report. The day before we have the biggest equity on the planet, Apple is going to report earnings. The day before that, we have a very anticipated Fed meeting, right? If you wanted to buy an at the money put in the S&P 500, it would cost you one and a quarter percent. Okay, one and a quarter percent to to hedge a portfolio that maps towards the S&P 500. Now, you've been in the game for a long time. You might not be um, somebody who uses those sorts of instruments to hedge, but you look at that as an input to give you a sense for the sort of uh, fear that is out there in the market. When you hear something like that, Alf, what does that say to you at a time? It says to me, ultimate complacency right now. And so I'm just curious, like when you see a data point like that, how does it want you to be positioned right here? Well, look, um, you want to buy insurance, not when the house is on fire, right? Because everybody else is bidding up insurance. And there were people buying out of the money puts extremely expensive on banks exactly at the at the you know at the peak of the 15 17 march banking hysteria out there that obviously is the wrong idea in the first place because you just spend too much money on the premium so obviously with hindsight if you do 50 trades like that and you tend to buy insurance when the house is on fire you are not going to get paid back for it at the end of the 50 trades right on the other hand when insurance is cheap then it's when you get interested. Now, what I do what I, at the Macro Compass is not only look at options in the stock market, but I also look at options in the bond market, in the FX space, in credits, in all asset classes. And I try to understand exactly that. Is the market beating up insurance premium? Is the market worried? And the answer I get all over the place right now is no, not at all. Even if you look at emerging markets, there is an incredible complacency right now that you can go and hide and buy Brazilian stocks and Mexican peso and all these emerging market exposures, and they're going to be fine. It's going to be great. Even Europe now seems to be a safe haven all of a sudden. And when you hear that last time that Europe was considered a safe haven and that, that the ECB was hiking while the Federal Reserve was likely to stop, which is my base case after summer, last time the ECB was hiking when the Fed was stopping was in summer 2008, and in summer 2011, I mean, shall I remind people what happened later in 2008 and in 2012, we had the European debt crisis as well. So normally these periods where things appear very funny and people have very relaxed takes on places that are normally considered more risky than the U.S., this is when I get particularly interested in wanting to buy protection. Let's talk a little bit about one of those events that I think is going to take front and center, especially as we get through the kind of bulk of U.S. Uh, Q1 earnings here, and that's going to be the Fed. And you had a you had a, uh, a tweet the other day that was really interesting, and we'll put it in the show notes here. Um, in March of 08, the Fed was not yet sure about a recession while we were in the midst of the mother of all financial crises. Um, don't trust the Fed to tell you uh, when we're in that cycle. So I thought that was really interesting. And um, um, talk to me a little bit about what you think their credibility is right here. Um, and and where, what do you think is the most, like, what should investors, what should readers of your macro compass, what should listeners of this podcast, what should they be focused on to get a sense whether the U.S. is going to be headed into a recession? And let's talk about the positioning. And, and, and you are... While you sound cautious on the macro, you are constructive. There are ways to make money in, in, in a, a macro environment where there's a lot of uncertainty. So I'm just curious how you're thinking about this because it seems like in about a month from now, we're going to have a lot more certainty about at least the path forward for the Fed once we have Fed fund at about 5%. So the Fed is one and done in May. They'll hike 25 basis points in May, and then I think they'll stop. They'll be done with it. Now... When it comes to markets, generally markets like that in the first instance, because the uncertainty about the Fed hiking path ahead is basically taken out, right? You know the Fed is going to be sticking at 5% for as long as they can. The problem is, as long as they can means until they have broken something for good. So when it comes to recessionary signals, right, what you want to look out for is actually a couple of things here. The first is, Look, the labor market is already been weakening under the surface for three to six months. And how do you look at that? It's not by looking at non-farm payrolls. This data is statistically very volatile. 
sometimes subject to large revisions exposed, what you want to look at is the internals of the job market, as I call it. So two things in particular. The first is the industries that are hiring on a net basis and not hiring anymore. Just look at which industries are adding jobs. And right now we're looking at education, healthcare, government. Do they sound to you as very pro-cyclical industries? Not really, right? The pro-cyclical industries, housing market, financials, tech, um, cyclical industries in general are not hiring at all at the same base they were hiring six months ago. Second indicator, again, look under the surface. That's what we do at the Macro Compass. Temporary workers hiring has collapsed already since the second half of 2022. Why does that matter? When you're expanding your hiring activity, you first hire temporary workers to fill in the gap, and then you move to permanent workers. When you're firing people, who do you fire first? You fire your temp workers. They have more flexible contracts. They're easy to dispose as they're easy to hire back. Well, temporary workers have been falling in the US for a while, and even full-time workers are not being hired on a net basis anymore that much. So guys, the internals of the job market are weakening. And we should pay attention to that because every time the job market starts to weaken, it is the last shoot to fall really to announce to us we're in a recession. The Fed and the NBER are going to actually recognize that we're in a recession, not earlier than three to six months after we are already in it. You just said the March 2008 example, I think is great. We were in it already. And the Fed said, well, we maybe see a mild recession. Yeah, really? So don't wait for the Fed to tell you you're in it. You know what's interesting? And I want to make one point about the the firing um, of workers. You start with temp and then you go to the permanent, like you just said here. You know, in this last, let's call it three to six months, and some of the hardest hit names were obviously um, tech. And these were also some of the biggest, um, you know, employers in the last two to three years. You know, companies like Meta were hiring tens of thousands of employees, you know, since, let, let's say, the pandemic. And, you know, today there's a headline we're recording this Friday morning that, you know, that uh, Meta is, is readying more layoffs. They're slowing hiring, you know, all this. And the stock's down. And the stock's down because the stock has rallied 100% after declining 75% from its all-time highs. You get to a point where they've cut to the bone, and then you start thinking about what else are they going to cut, whether it's CapEx, whether, you know, like there's a whole host of things that I think, and, and these are the sorts of things that we're going to learn, I think, on, on a, a single stock level. This is on the more micro level as we get um, into the earnings season. The other thing, Alf, and I don't know if you, you, you caught this this week, and, you know, I, I have a lot of PTSD, as many people people do who lived through the, the financial crisis here. Um, and, you know, going back to the highs in the stock market in November of 2007, I always like to think of like things to bookmark here. And I remember it was Cisco and Cisco was one of the largest tech companies um, on the planet back then by revenue. And they had exposure to enterprise, the exposure to government geographies all over the world, you know, that sort of thing. And it was a really interesting bellwether. And in November of 07, they had a miss and a guide down. And I remember thinking and looking at the kind of internals of that and, and what you would if you wanted to extrapolate that, you it, it really would have been pretty bad. It was interesting. Earlier this week, we had this company called CDW, and they're a big reseller of both hardware and software and services. And it was a really bad guy. The stock was down 25%. And interestingly, Cisco, since that negative report has been down 10% in a straight line. Now that company is a smaller company, but I like to think about some things like that. The other one was Tesla this week. And it was a story that is a bit like a cult, right? Following, um, and, and obviously the products and the CEO and, and the aura around it. But here's a company where the fundamentals are getting worse and we haven't even had a recession yet. And so in a higher interest rate environment, and it takes really lending to buy their products and they keep cutting prices and the margins are under pressure and the the backlog is going lower and the inventories are going higher. And if this was not a cult-like story, that stock would be much lower. So how much do you think about some of these individual stories when you're kind of making this macro mosaic? I do. And what you're saying is really relevant because across the tech sector, we have already gotten some shaky earnings reports over the last few quarters with some so-so guidance, right? So the trend is very clear, even at big tech level, if you ask me, I expect earnings to deteriorate further. And actually, you know, the bear market has two legs. The first one is valuations repricing. And we have seen that in 2022. I mean, earnings weren't falling that much at that point yet. 
but it was the repricing of risk-free rates. I mean, you moved from 0% yield to 5% yields at some point. So obviously, your cash flows have to be discounted differently. It's a valuation story. But people think that we're done with it. I mean, that's it. A bear market also has a second lag, which is a, an earnings per share lag. It's the moment when the labor market suffers. It's the 2001 moment, if you remember. In 2000, we repriced valuations the dot-com bubble basically burst, in other words. But it was in 2001 when earnings start to fall. And in 2001, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates by 475 basis points in a year. That will be the equivalent of bringing rates to zero, effectively, by mid-2024. And ask me, what did the S&P do? The, the year when the Fed cut interest rates by 475 basis points, the mother of all Fed pivots, the S&P dropped another 12% that year. Why? Because earnings were collapsing. People were getting fired. Real money was selling their equities to raise capital because earnings were coming down. Jobs were lost. That's not the moment when people jump in into the stock market. We haven't seen yet that second leg down in earnings, which are suggesting when looking at these companies that are sometimes considered to be the bellwether of overall economic activity. So we are going to get there. Things are very calm now, I think which is a great opportunity to position and buy some insurance when nobody thinks they need it. This is the same story. Do you remember the higher for longer narrative of February? I mean, we were never going to cut rates. Rates were going to be at 5%, 6% maybe. Economists were calling for 7% Fed funds. Buying call option on TLT, buying bond optionality basically to protect your portfolio was as cheap as it could ever be, right? So maybe you weren't right. Maybe the banking crisis didn't happen. You didn't know with hindsight, but that was cheap optionality. And that's the same way I'm looking at it right now when I look at puts on the S&P 500. Well, and you could, you could throw gold in that um, category too back then too. And, you know, one, one, one theme that, you know, as I read your posts, um, you know, you, you, you really like to kind of lead readers um, it towards, you know, away actually from lagging indicators. You just mentioned as you think about, um, you know, the, the jobs report, but you had a tweet out yesterday um, on leading indicators. The U.S. Conference Board, LEI, takes the 10 most effective leading indicators and aggregates them into an index. The year-over-year change dropped further below 7% over the last 40 years. Every time this indicator drops um, below that, it stays there for two plus months. We are in a recession, 100% hit rate. Talk to me a little bit about that. David Rosenberg, um, who um, I really appreciate his work and he's come on the pot a bunch. He was also talking about this yesterday in, in some of his work. So talk to us about how investors should be thinking about leading indicators. Yeah. Look, I mean, the conference board leading indicator is interesting because it does some of the work for you. They look at the 10 top statistically significant leading indicators in the US and they aggregate them all in an index. And then the index is published every month. It's been declining for 12 months in a row. Okay. So I, I run a, a historical analysis looking at 50 years and every time that this indicator prints negative for two or more consecutive months. So it's not just a blip or a false signal, but it prints negative for more consecutive months. Then you're basically always looking at the recession seven to eight months out. Now, the two negative prints happened by September last year. So you're looking basically with a normal leading time at a recession starting round about now. It might be now, it might be May, it might be June, but you're looking at recessionary probabilities increasing. The other indicator that I like looking at is the creation of money for the private sector. So I want to look at credit. I want to look at money that reaches our pocket, guys. I mean, I don't care about financial money in that context. All this QE, bank reserves, financial engineering, I want to check how much money we and corporates are getting in our pockets to spend on goods and services. And that amount of money exploded in 2020 and early 21 because the government was doing deficits. You know, they were sending checks at home to people and banks were lending because the government were guaranteeing losses. But that has stopped a long while ago. So we haven't been expanding credit to the real economy at the same pace, not at all. Even before the banking stress, credit conditions were tightening. Lending standards were tightening, which means corporates, households, People involved in the housing market are having a hard time getting credit on. And when the private sector is choked for credit, things slow down. It's natural. You have less access to leverage, less access to cheap credit. Things slow down. My credit impulse that I publish on the Macro Compass, it aggregates the five largest economies in the world and it checks how much money is being created 
looks really, really negative. It looks at 2007 levels, just before the great financial crisis. So does it mean we're going to get another one now? I don't know, but it's sure I don't want to be allocated 100% into equities, 0% into defensive positions, because that's not what my macro models are suggesting at all. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We just got through the, the, you know, the U.S. Money Center Bank earnings, and it seemed like for the most part, most of the CEOs were fairly constructive on the consumer, right? And But you and I know that, again, maybe that is just kind of an overlay of what the uh, stock market has done this year because we're seeing the housing data not particularly good, right? And so you're seeing, you know, savings rates come in, you're seeing consumer credit go up to levels that we've never seen. And, you know, the one piece of the puzzle here is that we still have an unemployment rate at three and a half percent, but under the hood to your point, some of the data as it relates to, to the jobs market is getting weaker. And if that were to shoot up to 4%, I think that's how this kind of slowdown really starts to um, accelerate a little bit. So l- let me just say one thing. So if you say there's a good chance that we could be starting the recession now, what does some of your work suggest about how the stock market reacts as we are about to start a recession, right? So over history, um, you know, you know, it's. I don't think there are too many instances where the stock market has bottomed prior to a recession starting. I looked at the hundred years history, and the stock market has basically almost never bottomed before a recession. Never. So is this time different for very expensive words in finance to use? Now, obviously, if you don't expect a recession, it might well be that the market just chucks along. You know, it just goes there slowly but surely, slow grind up. If you expect a recession to happen, and look, the Federal Reserve is making everything they can to make it happen. They're going to keep rates now at 5% until something bad happens. I mean, you are literally being paid to wait. That's the advantage you have this time. You can keep money in T-bills, getting paid 5% to wait until the Federal Reserve does something really bad and something really breaks of systemic importance. And that moment is going to happen. Maybe it doesn't happen in a month or two, maybe it happens in three months, but the expected return in investing into high beta risky assets at this point in the cycle, where things are already slowing, where a recession should be considered a base case, I think, in a couple of months, and the Federal Reserve is making sure they keep policy tight until something actually breaks, I think the expected return in investing in risk assets is pretty bad, especially as you're paid 5% a year, risk-free, to wait. All right, so I have two questions. And and one, um, you know, you referenced this before. So if you're waiting because your muscle memory is to buy stocks because the Fed is going to start to lower rates, and you're, you just gave the example in 01 where Fed funds was above 6%, and it basically went to 1%. And then in 07, it was above 5% and basically went to zero. In both instances, in both instances, the S&P 500 got cut in half, okay, from its highs, okay? So, like, that's a really important factor. So, if you look at this chart of Fed funds, you know that we just went from zero to 5%, and they're going to keep it there until what you just said, something's going to break. And at our lows last year, the S&P was down 27%, and we also just said, in 100 years, your data suggests that the market does not bottom before the recession. So, you put all that together, and you say to yourself, it's not a great spot to be buying stock right here. But here's the other point. And you just said this, and and I keep getting this question, and this is really important, okay? You're getting paid to put your money in short-term treasuries, okay? But here's the thing. What if the U.S. Treasury defaults on its debts? What if we have a 2011 situation where this, uh, you know, if we have this debt ceiling tripped, how comfortable are you having your money in short-term treasuries? Well, that means you're going to get delayed on the payments, right? So basically, they're not going to be paying you until they figure out how to resolve the problem. So effectively, your 5% a year will be watered down because you'll you'll be getting your money back later, right? I mean, when I say you get paid risk-free rates, it means sooner or later, you're going to get your money back. I expect that the debt ceiling will be resolved as it every time is. It's a political weapon at the end of the day, right? And it's a political discussion. But the broader... The broader perspective here is the following. I've been hearing from a lot of my hedge funds and macro investors that are subscribed to the Macro Compass questions like, well, Alf, inflation has become structural, right? I mean, we're going to have inflation trending between 3 and 5%, and you know, it's going to be there because of deglobalization and onshoring and all of this you know, uh, post-pandemic uh, restructuring of the world. So that means the Fed is not going to cut rates anymore back to, you know, 
1% or 2%. At best, they're going to cut rates to 3%. Well, guys, if we get a proper recession, as I expect, Fed funds are going to zero. I want to repeat it again, zero. And why? Because people confuse trends with cycles. So a long-term trend might well be that inflation has become entrenched. It might well be, but it will take a decade for that trend to play out. In the meantime, if you get a proper recession with housing market deleveraging, with people losing their jobs, with inflation collapsing, and an average recession brings inflation down by seven percentage points, guys. I mean, the recession is the perfect cure for inflation. It's a very painful and expensive one, but it works. It sure works. So if we get a recession there and inflation collapses and people are losing their jobs and the housing market is deleveraging, why would the Fed not be forced to cut rates all the way back to 1% or 0%? I don't see any particular reason. Yes, then inflation becomes entrenched. And later on, in 5 or 10 years, we're looking at Fed funds that are higher than average. But in the cycle, in the recessionary cycle, the Fed will have their hands tied and they will be forced to cut rates back to 0%. So from that perspective, the way I see it is you've got to buy some bonds at some point. Don't be greedy. Everybody's looking at, yeah, but 10-year treasuries might be again at 4%. I want to wait exactly for that moment to buy them. And I'm like, yeah, but what if you have zero bonds in your portfolio and the Fed is cutting all the way to 0% just because you were greedy for a few basis points? So my take here is accumulate a bit of fixed income position in your portfolio because it works well. The dollar, everybody seems to be willing to sell the dollar now down because Europe is better than the US. That's a story we hear. Buy Brazilian real because emerging markets are safe. Guys, if we get a global recession and a deleveraging episode, I can guarantee you want dollars, not Brazilian real and not euro. So now that they're on sale, I would buy some of those too. And when it comes to the equity market, just act defensive. I mean, there is no reason to chase this unprofitable tech rally. You don't want unprofitable tech companies in your portfolios during a recession. If you have to have some equities, choose strong balance sheet companies, more defensive sectors, anti-cyclical sectors, not a bunch of unprofitable tech companies, please. You know, it's funny. One of my themes has been, um, you know, when we get towards a bottom, you know, I, I want Qs and twos. And, and when you think of the QQQ and you think of the the top six or seven names, yeah, they're trading a bit expensive to their historical, but but I think it is because of that safety. You saw the outperformance by those names in March, right? When we had this kind of banking turmoil. And the other one is I am of also the belief um, that you, you know, when I say twos, I, I really mean at some point we're going to have that downdraft in yields, right? But I want to be in larger defensive tech that do have some cyclical exposure, but really do have those moats as it relates to, they're basically monopolies. They have massive balance sheets, all the, all the like here. Well, listen, Alf, um, it was really great to do this. I hope we can do it um, more often. Um, talk to our people about where they can find you. Obviously, Twitter, you put a lot of great content out, but like if you really want the ALF, you know, a couple times, two, three times a week, more in depth, the macro compass is just a great read. It's really digestible. And I hope as we kind of had this conversation, I don't think there's anything, if you're just somebody who kind of, you know, really likes to pick stocks and you're very domestically focused, that sort of thing. I think when you hear someone like him talk about the dollar, the Dixie was trading at 115 six months ago. Here it is down at 101 and a half and trying to understand how does that affect your U.S. multinational holdings? Why why might it be a good opportunity? Why might we see a sea change in rates in six to nine months and for what reasons and how that might affect your longer duration assets that you hold? All of that stuff, that's all in the Macro Compass. Alf, where can they find you? The macrocompass.com is the website. And all I do there multiple times a week is I take all the mistakes that I've made and all the things that I learned when I run $20 billion. And I've made plenty of them, I can guarantee. And I've learned plenty of things. And I take what's happening across the world, try to break it down in plain English, make it digestible, and make it actionable. So you'll have tactical trade ideas, ETF portfolios, simple to have a look at the asset allocation I'm having, trying to translate my macro models and my experience into action. All of that is on the macrocompass.com. All right, my man. Well, I appreciate you coming back, and I hope to do it again very soon. So thanks a lot, Alfonso Pacitiello. Thank you very much. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi.
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.